what I want to talk to you um, to you today is more about anemia in the Anthropocene. Uh, using Peru as a case study, using a current project uh, that I have in the case uh, in Peru, which is a project um, from the Newton Fund. It's a bilateral project with Peru, whose funding from Peru, from Constitution Fondesit, and in the UK from the MRC. Uh, we are four institutions. In the UK, we got the Queen Mary University of London, where I'm based. And in Peru, we got the uh, National Institute of Child Health in Lima, which is the main partner institution. And then we got in the regions in Pucallpa, the National uh, University of Indigenous, um, the National Intercultural University of the Amazon, which is the first indigenous uh, university certified by Peru by the Peruvian government. And in Ayacucho, in the Andes, we got the National University of San Cristobal de Huamanga in Ayacucho. Those are our partner institutions um, and um, who have been, who are involved in this project. What I'm presenting today, I would have wished is already a presentation of some more data. Unfortunately, we are running a little bit behind in the project because it's also known for research projects, but a little bit of a challenge. So I'm more presenting uh, the methodology and the protocols uh, for the research. And I want to engage with you in the discussion on how can we, or how important is it uh, to use an eco-biosociopolitical approach to understand not only anemia, but different aspects of negative health outcomes within the Anthropocene, and how do we have to rethink our own methodologies, and what does it also mean as an anthropologist to lead an interdisciplinary team across borders. So what's uh, the background? Uh, we have globally, um, anemia and children and women in 107 countries um, and um, this is based on health surveys and that we, we have a prevalence um, of about 43% uh, right now which has decreased between 1995 uh, to 2011. This is a prevalence uh, on children between 6 to 59 months. In our project, we are looking at newborns, which we are following for 12 months. So we are working with young children. Um, and the prevalence between 2000 and 2010 was over 50% in children aged 6 to 35 months in Peru. And um, in by 2017, it was still around 40%. And we will go to the latest data in a, in a minute. We are particularly looking at iron deficiency anemia. So there are different kinds of anemia. As I said, in the first 24 months of life, um, there are related neurological and behavioral deficits in the following years of life that are associated with iron deficiency anemia. Um, and we know that uh, from research that treatment with iron supplements cannot always reverse iron deficiency anemia which means that there are likely neurological damage because of iron deficiency and its effects on brain development, um, which often appear much earlier uh, than the presence of iron deficiency anemia. I will show you three different uh, graphs right now about um, anemia in Peru and why we are focusing on Peru and why we are focusing on anemia. Um, in this graph, you can see the data from the INE and ELIS from 2000 to 2016, 
which is showing um, the difference between rural and urban. Um, so the, the rural um, is the red line, um, the blue one is the national prevalence, and then the green one is the urban prevalence, um, and showing a start at 61% for the rural area and uh, going down to 53% in 2016, uh, whereas in the urban area you also started with a very high prevalence of 60.4% in 2000 and in 2016 we're down to 39.9. There are however differences and we have some parts of Peru where there has been higher prevalence of about 80% uh, which has been decreased. We are looking at three different regions. Um, Peru is highly biodiverse, um, which is very important uh, when you look into anemia because anemia can be caused by malnutrition, for example, uh, why um, um, the, the area, the concept of the Anthropocene comes into, into play. Um, and um, we have these three regions of the Amazon area, uh, where you get the Ucayali regional department, which is here in gray. Then you got uh, the Andes, uh, which high altitudes of 2,700 meters, which has an impact on hemoglobin levels. Um, it's here in blue with Ayacucho. And then you got the orange one, Lima and Callao, uh, which is on the coast, which is a desert, desert area. And you can see the differences um, between the Lima as the capital, uh, with much lower prevalence, and the highest prevalence actually in the Ucayali region, which um, is the Amazon region, which is questionable because it is a highly biodiverse area where actually there shouldn't be, bless you, there shouldn't be such a high prevalence. Um, sorry that you can't, uh, that <laughs> the projector um, is not very helpful at this one. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, this is the latest data uh, from the same um, um, institute in the NAE, so the Statistical National Statistical Institute um, in Peru coming out, which has just come out a couple of weeks ago, uh, which shows the uh, development over the last year, and you can see that there has been a decrease across Peru from 43.5% to 41%. I'm not going to go further in the details here. Uh, what we are interested in is uh, what are the ecological, biological, social and political factors that increased the risk on iron deficiency anemia in the first year of life of 300 children in Lima, Ayacucho, and Pucallpa, who will be born to mothers without anemia in the year 2020. I want to go now through the different factors uh, and how they are influencing uh, or how they contextualize anemia in Peru. Um, we are studying with the political economic factors. So there has been a steady increase of the GDP in Peru, uh, mainly based uh, to the commodity boom, uh, to mining, oil and other forms of mining, uh, which has been to up to over 8% between 2000 and 2018. There has, however, not been any direct impact on poverty reduction, on food security or improved health outcomes. Uh, which would have been theoretically expected to be related to the commodity boom and to the increased GDP. There has also not been, and this is based on a work by Alcazar and colleagues from 2013, no lasting systemic approach by the state um, besides those evidence that social and economic impacts are there or social and economic factors are there influencing 
Armenian prevalence to really uh, address the issue. So what we can learn here, and this is uh, also based on, on work from um, colleagues here, Rosemary Stroff, who um, is Emeritus Professor from Oxford uh, in Paris, who also did her defund here at Oxford, uh, that macroeconomic success alone uh, only perpetuates inequalities or malnutrition and actually does not uh, influence on um, um, reduction of food insecurity. So in the case of Peru, we really have to look into food insecurity from a historically grown problem rooted in colonial history as a power relations and distributed unevenly in each ecological region of Peru, because there, are, of course, are also different historical uh, connections. Since 2008, two, uh, the regional departments have much more power and can develop their own policies um, in any kind of area, so in health and environment, so they are much more independent and decentralized and therefore need to be analyzed uh, individually to be able to understand the complexity of the issues. And this is what is new about our research, that we really want to look into the complexity of the factors, how they play out together. So Peru and Anina has been involved in comparison studies with other countries of the world, but we lack uh, an in-depth study of um, because of the interplay of the different factors in the different regions from an historical approach in Peru. If we look at the social factors, um, Food insecurity and malnutrition are consequences of multidimensional factors related to social and economic inequalities, which of course is nothing new to you sitting here and having studied with Stanley. So, <laughs> but um, the, what we need to take into account for the Peruvian case is um, the particular context of rural urban migration patterns, uh, which is related also um, to internal conflict, uh, to dictatorship, etc. Um, so to the Chining Pass in the 1980s and the Fujimori regime uh, from the 1990s to 2000. Um, we need to take into account the restricted access to economic resources. So I have been in Peru first as a, uh, was a school exchange program in 1992 and then later on as a, as a student uh, for, yeah, it's going to be soon 30 years. Um, and the families that I have been working with have actually not been able to improve their uh, life circumstances, <coughs> their income, etc., housing conditions, education, etc. Overall, and this is just one example of the continued problems that there has been a continuous um, increase or a continuous um, or con continuous saying of, um, of inequality within the country. Um, there are differences of gender relations within households. Uh, femicides are really high in Peru. It's one of the highest countries of femicides um, in the world. Um, if I remember correctly, but now I think it's on the third place. Um, so, but this also differs again uh, between context and regions. Uh, which also has an impact on power dynamics in households and women's access to land and quality of food, which has an impact, of course, on, on uh, malnutrition or nutrition per se. What are the biological factors um, that we are looking at and that we are taking into account? Uh, again, this is a relatively new component in our research. We are looking at the microbiota development and iron homeostasis 
uh, in breastfeeding infants. Uh, we know that normally mothers breastfeed until six months, um, but we have seen in Peru that some mothers already give a little bit of food in four months, at four months uh, age, uh, which has a direct impact on the development of the microbiota uh, and can interfere with the absorption of iron, um, which is something that we need to look at. Um, so there are disrupted um, environmental factors. So we are working in uh, degraded ecosystems, uh, which is highly important. And we are looking particularly into factors uh, that have an impact of, on the microbiota, which can be unclean water, lack of sanitation, early introduction of complementary feeding, and the quality of the infant diet. Uh, which are all factors that have been mentioned in the literature already to be related uh, to anemia prevalence. This leads us directly to the ecological and environmental factors. So biodiversity loss uh, has an impact um, on the access to food, quality of food, but also on the quality of soil, um, and therefore the direct um, interrelationship between the development of microbiota. There's an increase of urbanization um, which, of course, again, is related to deteriorating ecosystems, which might have a, a much more important factor to play in the high biodiverse areas of the Amazon region rather than maybe in the desert region of the capital. Um, so we are looking, we need to take into account the biodiversity of the soil, uh, the absorption of bacteria via skin, as we know, um, which has a direct impact on the uh, microbiota development in homeostasis. Um, therefore, it's important to look at the place of birth and its residence. So geography place has a very strong aspect here which shouldn't be um, forgotten. And um, the place where you live is not often the place where you decided freely where you can live, but it very often um, internal migration um, is is forced migration because of conflict, etc., or economic reason, reasons or other reasons. So people don't really decide freely where they want to live, um, which is important to analyze the impact of the place where they live and the environment on their on their house, uh, which can have, of course, uh, a two-sided impact. So impact. Uh, on the people and on the development of microbiota, access to food, etc., but also, of course, that the people uh, in a specific place have also a continuous impact on the environment and shape the environment. Therefore, we talk about landscapes where they live in. Um, so, another aspect, and this goes back then to the Anthropocene, is that climate change is altering iron and other mineral contents on certain foods, uh, which we need to take into account and um, which puts a higher risk on uh, malnutrition during the Anthropocene. This has led us to come up with a very simplified diagram, which is a diagram that is based on, on the literature review on where we are currently at, um, which we hope and expect uh, to become much more complex and which we also hope that, or I expect, will be uh, different uh, with different emphasis in, in each region. So we've got iron deficiency, anemia in the middle, uh, and then we've got the biological factors, social factors, political factors, and ecological factors, 
who all interact uh, with each other. What they currently, for example, don't do in this premise, you can't really see um, how directly political factors have an impact on biological factors or something uh, related. So this is something that we are currently developing based on the data that we will be getting. But it helps us, or it has helped us, to set up the project. So the objective is um, to understand the complexity of the ecological, biological, social and political factors that affect the food insecurity of breastfeeding mothers and their newborns in different regions of Peru, and that alter the mechanisms of adaptive iron homostasis in infants during the Anthropocene. Um, I won't go into the hypothesis now because of time. Let's go over to the methodology. So how are we going to analyze and what are the different methodologies? Um, we are working with a cohort study of 300 newborns plus 10% in the three different ecological zones, uh, plus 10% because we need to end up with at least 80% um, of the newborns and their mothers to take part in the study for the data because it's statistically uh, powerful. In terms of inclusion uh, criteria, the mothers need to be healthy mothers. Um, there needs to be an illegal cord cutting because we know that um, cesarean section has a direct impact on the uh, microbiota development. They need to have a normal weight of at least 2,500 gram. There needs to be um, um, the umbilical cutting. I think it's called umbilical cutting in English, uh, which needs to be higher, larger than 30 seconds. Um, and they need to be um, left the hospital at 72 hours. There shouldn't have been any asphyxiations or any infection or malformation. Um, there should also not be um, siblings born, etc. So only one worse. Um, importantly, w this is a participatory study, um, which is why there is the ecobio uh, social. Um, political approach. The approach that we are using is based on the EcoHealth approach, uh, which has been introduced uh, by Fortet and Level. Um, there's a fantastic book, if one of you don't know and are interested um, on it by Sharon from 2012, bringing together um, EcoHealth studies that have had an impact um, on making a difference in societies across the world. Um, the, um, the participatory approach here means that you're starting off from the beginning to work uh, with the stakeholders, whereas for the grant proposal writing we were not able to do this, but as soon as we received uh, the grant last year in June, um, we opened up the study and we had stakeholders meeting um, in the three cities, which allowed us uh, to present our methodology, our ideas, and to take in their interest, uh, their concerns. So for example, one concern was um, the water quality and that we do the water analysis based on a specific nationally recognized uh, methodology. So in the case that we find some um, water data which might show that there's a negative impact on the, from the water quality on anemia prevalence, that the regional governments uh, can use this data policy impact and changes in policies. Um, the, what's also important uh, for the, this approach is that uh, it takes into account gender aspects, so gender inequality within the research team. 
that does not really take into account the decolonizing methodology, uh, which is an important aspect. Um, we work and we have presented our work uh, to indigenous um, organizations. We are working in the Amazon region with indigenous people, very likely with the Pivo Conigo and Ine people, and in Ayacucho with um, Quechua populations. Um, in a decolonizing approach, you would have um, changed the methodology and you would have adjusted the methodology to a locally local uh, methodology of creating knowledge. We hope, however, that um, together in this participatory approach, we can uh, develop something that goes closer to it and maybe develop a methodology for further research together with the, with the actors involved. It also means an interdisciplinary team. And as you can already see, if somebody analyzes uh, social, political, environmental, <laughs> and biological factors, you need a large team. So we, of course, we have microbiologists, we have pediatricians, we have nurses, we have environmental experts, uh, anthropologists, um, epidemiologists, and so on. So a wide team, uh, which is highly important. What we add to uh, this current approach is the political dimension. Um, and this is important because Peru has already put in lots of funding uh, into anemia policies in order to reduce anemia, particularly over the last four to five years, and have, however, not been able to go down to the under 20% mark, which is the guiding mark from the WHO, which is now uh, the goal for the for 2020, I think over the year next year, uh, one or two, I'm not sure about this data, either next year or the year, year after. Um, and what it means is uh, with this research and to work participatory with the actors from the beginning and involving them in the different phases of the project is that um, the research that's out there has shown that there is a much uh, higher, potenti higher potential for sustainability of further policy developments so that policies that have been developed out of research uh, with actors has actually had a long-term impact on society. And this is our goal. So this is an applied research project, as you can see, and the goal is really to have, to uh, use our understanding to really comprehend what's happening, to then use it for further research or for policy uh, implementations or the further development or changes, whatever is needed. So it's not only interdisciplinary, it's multidisciplinary, and, and very importantly, what I haven't said yet, it's uh, an iterative design um, so, which means that um, throughout the participatory process uh, we make changes, which of course after the beginning phase um, will not be happening on the biological part or on the environmental one, but definitely throughout the social and political compens analysis. And very important also, it's a needs-based uh, centered. So it's not something that we have, um, that all that I have thought about, or that would be something I would be interested in, it's something that's a national priority, and it's a regional priority, which actually shows very much in the team that we have, because we work not only with our academic team, but also with people in different hospitals and different health centers together who are supporting us, and they are in there because they understand the necessity and they really want to understand what's happening and want to have an impact. Um, limitations of this approach, um, and this is something that I have actually analyzed during the consultancy work 
with uh, two other colleagues, Ms. Um, Hoibach and Berghofer, 2017, that it doesn't include a planetary process, and there's actually uh, currently no toolbox for policymakers in relation to health assessments and ecosystem services where this approach could be used. But who knows, maybe we can develop something throughout. Um, so from the participatory approach, um, what I haven't mentioned yet is um, that throughout the process there will be, or there are focus groups and in-depth interviews with the different actors. And at the end process um, there, so there will be um, uh, the discussion of primary results and ways forward. So what are we looking at in detail? At the biological factors, we are uh, taking blood samples. Uh, we are following, I said, for 12 months in newborns. We are having a baseline at birth and then following up at four months, at eight months, and at 12 months. And um, we are taking the blood sample to analyze hemoglobin and creatina, so the iron level, um, and polymerase, so PCR, chain reaction, and the receptor of um, transferina um, to look into anemia prevalence, but also into metal uh, contamination. We are using stool samples for microbiota analysis, and here we do the genomic analysis of the microbiota in the UK, uh, which is a novel part um, of the research project. Uh, we, the, um, and there's an error in the numbering, um, we, in the anthropometric part, um, we look at weight, height, and perimeters, and we also conduct a nutritional frequency survey, which will actually allow us to see, so what is it, what kind of food do the mothers really give at the beginning, which will be um, complementary to participatory observations, because it's different of uh, asking somebody than being really there and seeing what people are giving, or if they just um, give the, the newborn something at four months when they are eating themselves from their own mouth, etc., which can already uh, have an impact. Um, so. This leads me then to the ecological factors where we do water sampling in all the three sites, soil sampling, and we have included now air sampling. There has been, I think it was in August last year, a new article coming out from colleagues at the Cayetano University in Peru, uh, an ecological study relating uh, air contamination to anemia prevalence, um, and this will all be georeferenced so that we can have a spatial analysis of the interplay of the complexity of those factors together. Within the water, soil, and air sampling, we are looking into microbiological analysis and heavy metal analysis, which have two different ways within the body uh, to, um, to influence anemia prevalence. Very important for um, water and soil sampling, of course, and also for air sampling, is seasonality. Um, of course, um, water is and water quality is dependent if it is a rainy season or not. In some areas, the same for air uh, and soil sampling, which need to be taken into account. Um, when I talk about seasonalities, we will use um, two samples for each. So one sample, um, not at the beginning or the end, of a season but in the middle of the season because the beginning and the end 
are always varying, so it's better to take samples uh, from the middle, um, so from the rainy and non-raining season. Within the social cultural factors, um, we are doing participant observations, um, interviews, focus groups, and also photo voice. Photo voice uh, for the mothers for empowerment. And photo voice will be important, maybe also to be a little bit more decolonizing in that sense. And maybe allows us also in the focus groups to see, okay, uh, how could we in the future develop a similar project as there have been other universities in our other regions who have already uh, said that they are interested in our project to do something similar in different regions of Peru. Uh, we analyze six different, uh, six different. I sometimes switch to Spanish. Very good, very good. Photo voice is uh, when you give the participants a camera, and you ask them to take a picture on a specific topic. In this case, about nutrition and the development of the baby, and then there will be an exhibition, and which will be open to the public and for discussion. And this gives them the possibility to raise their own voice and to be actively part in the research project. There's actually lots of literature out there, which is related also to drawings, so to ask participants to draw and then do exhibitions, etc., or talk about the drawings. Mm -hmm. So different kinds of methods to really give people a voice and empower people, particularly women, in a very patriarchalic uh, society. Um, so we are looking into perceptions of anemia, perceptions of environmental risk. Uh, when we look into perceptions of environmental risk, it, might, it will be very interesting to look into um, those aspects of what does it mean to live in an urban center, how is the uh, perception of the importance also from the quality of soil or anywhere where you live, so the place where you live, and the food that you eat and the quality of the food and how this changes uh, for your newborn. Um, the perception of blood, um, particularly in a country uh, where blood has played uh, an important role, particularly um, through the times of the China Pass and the dictatorship, um, particularly in Ayacucho, because if uh, women we will be working with in Ayacucho are very likely going to be descendants of forced migration from the conflict times. Um, and where also medical anthropology then of course comes in to contextualize um, what we see in the biological and the environmental data. There will be perceptions and experiences with anemia policies. Um, so over the last few years, um, there have been changes in the practice in the government practices where really government health workers have been coming from home to home. So one of the regions where we're working, we have a whole team of people who do follow-ups with mothers and visiting them every week or every other week. Um, which, of course, um, in, in one of the areas where I did my DIFA research uh, can be a little bit challenging, particularly for indigenous people, as there can be the feeling of um, um, continued coloniality um, in uh, Quijano's words, or as I call it also, as embodied coloniality, when you get the feeling, okay, there's again the state, there's again the role of the colonizers coming to my house and asking me things, uh, and asking me to do things, and I don't have access um, to healthcare, I don't have access to the knowledge itself, etc. So there are power relations, there are historical power relations that come into play, which are very important to take into account. Then of course also perceptions about food insecurity, and perceptions of biodiversity in relationship to nutrition and anemia. 
so far we have selected um, 10 women out in each place, so 10 out of 100 for the interviews uh, and, and long-term participant observation and uh, then different focus groups, which will be an iterative, iterative process as we will have to see uh, what comes out of the first ones, which will be run now. So we are starting to recruit the mothers and the newborns now in April to June, which should have happened already in January. Uh, and I will be doing the analysis of the sociocultural factors starting in, in May. And from the policy, final factors, the political factors, we are currently uh, finishing up a policy analysis. So national policies, um, so we have access to national policies from 72, uh, which were first more related to undernutrition and then malnutrition, and over the last few years with specific policy, policies on anemia. Um, there are, since, 90, uh, since 2002, the regional policies as well. And there are also um, um, policies on uh, municipality levels. So I'm currently uh, seeing on the municipality levels how much um, I need to go into detail. But this policy analysis will then help uh, to conduct the in-depth interviews uh, with the political um, actors uh, in each region, on a national, so on a national level and on a regional level. Uh, which will also go along with a capacity analysis. So the capacity analysis, so even if you have the most beautiful written uh, policy, you know, can say the most beautiful written policy is like reading a poem, um, it's very, it doesn't mean that it looks the same in the practice. And very often there are problems of implementation, there are problems of economic resources, of finances that have been attributed uh, to this specific policy which also changes with from government to government and interests which need to be analyzed and which need to be analyzed on paper but then of course also with those actors uh, that have been important in those different stages um, of the different policies. Um, and this then has to be put much more into the context also um, of corruption and weak institutions. So I mentioned at the beginning that the economic context is a context of macroeconomic growth based on the commodity boom, uh, which is, um, however, related to uh, an increase of weak institutions, an increase of corruption. Um, there are several processes currently ongoing for of corruption against uh, Peruvian leaders from the last 20, 20 years. Uh, almost 30 years, uh, which is important and it's uh, not yet clear to me and it might apply for extra funding to analyze particularly the corruption part. Uh, but one of the aspects that has already come out in preliminary conversations was um, the aspect of strikes as well and of changes in governments, of rotations. So um, what I can also see in my own project, there are problems often in, in public institutions although they have the money to pay their employees. And if that happens in the health sector, this can have a direct impact that, for example, health um, workers, they strike and they don't implement the policies because they are on strike. So uh, it has a direct impact on the outcome. So it might be that even the policy or the program was good, but in the end it couldn't be put into practice because um, there was a strike because people weren't able to get, um, to get paid, etc which needs to be taken into account. 
then of course the rotation of leaders in health institutions. So as this is a decentralized country, each region has its own um, health directorate uh, with the regional director in health and changes. And they sometimes change every several months, uh, which means that there's a new focus, there's a new group. And what I have seen and claimed through is there's often a lack of continuity. There's a lack of taking into account um, past policies and building on something but rather being, uh, well, what has been done before hasn't really been good, and we need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, which then leads me to the point when I'm looking for policy or something that people say, oh, we can give you the current policy, but we don't have access to anything from the past. Which also means it hasn't been taken into account, and it hasn't been really a knowledge in the sense of continuity, which has a direct, very likely direct impact uh, on, in this case, anemia outcome, but of course, in general, uh, on health outcomes and the implementation of policies. So we have here, to finish that part, the policy and the capacity anal uh, analysis, and then interviews and participant observations also with stakeholders, but also focus groups. Um, the, those will all be done um, <coughs> the first part this year, um, and um, then we will, as soon as we get the preliminary data, from our mothers and newborns, we will uh, present them and discuss them again, uh, which will be happening in the second half of next year. And we need to finish the project by the 31st of March in 2022, so it's a project that is funded uh, for three years. So what we have been doing is we've been using the first year for, um, was still ready to plan for the first six months, but it's now turning out a year, um, for ethics approval, um, protocol and organizing the whole study, etc. And then we have a year of data collection um, and uh, then and the final year for data analysis and writing up and formulating new policies or new research projects. Good. And to conclude, um, what we expect and hope for in a way is that uh, the eco-bios social-political approach will allow for a more comprehensive understanding of iron deficiency anemia in newborn in Peru, and um, that the participatory approach will enable a more sustainable policy research process. Thank you.